Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance access deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. You have the story in itself, right? This is a boy who likes to go on coon hunts. That's your basic story. And you'd think, well, you know, okay, that's interesting. Let's read about it. But then a great writer will tell a story with depth, meaning that when he goes on the coon hunt, he learns about how to behave, how to treat your fellow man, right? The pitfalls of, of lying and treachery, cunning and ambition and resilience. On this episode of the Bear Grease podcast, we're exploring a great work of American literature whose plot rides on a most peculiar but beloved pastime of rural America, coon hunting. We're diving deep into the book, Where the Red Fern Grows, written by Woodrow Wilson Rawls. How did this unlikely author, a one-hit wonder, some might say, with such a mysterious past, make it into the ranks of American literary giants? We'll hear from Professor Sean Tutan as we search out the national impact of the book. We'll talk with Stuart Peterson, who starred in the original 1974 movie. And we'll cut some hounds loose on a starry Ozark night with a man who's been devoted to red bone hounds his whole life. The ride is guaranteed to be wild as we search out that one time when coon hunting did a 360 slam dunk on mainstream culture and they loved it. You're not going to want to miss this one, boys. My dad had red bones when I was just a, just a little fella. Mm-hmm. The first I remember, I was probably five or six, and he had a three-legged dog that he called Bob. It was a red <laughs> dog, and I'll tell you, that song got short trick. And he, mm-hmm. he outrun most all the four-legged dogs. Well, I never knew any of them. Imagine if he'd had four legs. Hell, man. He probably wouldn't <laughs> have been worth a nickel, you know. <laughs> My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. 
presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. One day I was down in the field. Papa had me chopping some weeds out of some young corn. Rowdy was with me. He was always with me. And I had the old book with me, and I'd read him a page or two out of it two or three times that day, I guess. I don't know where the thought came from or the idea, but I do know that a million times in my life I wish it hadn't come around. But I thought, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could write a story like Call of the Wild? I don't know where this came from. I talked to a lot of writers. But the more I thought about this, the uh, more it got into my mind. And I first talked it over with Rowdy. I didn't have anyone else to talk to. I asked him what he, if he thought I could write a story like that. And uh, I think he understood a little bit of what I said. I know he did wag his tail. That was the voice of Woodrow Wilson Rawls, and I want to tell you an incredible story he's involved in. It's complex because our story over the next two episodes will weave in and out between real life and fiction, past and present, life and death, as it swoops in and out of the storylines of a book, a major motion picture, and people's lives. Like a winding Ozark road going from holler to hilltop, our story has multiple characters, layers, and objectives. First, I want us to understand an obscure pastime of rural America, hunting raccoons with hounds known far and wide as coon hunting. The sheer mention of it evokes warm, nostalgic responses in many, and often people can't even explain why. The story of coon hunting is deeply personal to me, but it's something far from gone. Coon hunting is alive and well in the rural United States. Secondly, I want to explore how a story about this niche pastime found its way into the halls of American literary classics. This book about coon hunting, Where the Red Fern Grows, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's been assigned reading in American schools from Los Angeles to New York City and everywhere in between since the late 1960s. I'm very interested in places where historical hunting traditions overflow into unlikely mainstream places like schools, works of literature, and Hollywood movies. The book has been made into two movies, the original in 1974 starring Stuart Peterson and the other in 2003 starring Dave Matthews. Yep, the singer. It's pretty rare that our story, the hunter's story, is told in such pristine tones that it creates widespread and undeniable affection for the hunter and the hunt. I think there is something unusual going on here and I want to trail it up. As we tell this big story, it'll require an understanding of the storyline of the book if you're not familiar with it, but I bet you are. Our curator will be Professor Sean Tutan of the University of Arkansas. He's a professor of English interested in the literature of the Ozarks and on a larger scale, Native American literature, which, as it turns out, Wilson Rawls was a member of the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. Here's Professor Tutan giving us the general outline 
of where the red fern grows. Hopefully, it doesn't make you cry. This is a story of a boy in the Ozarks who wants desperately to become a coon hunter. And he pleads with his parents day and night in tears to get some dogs. They're very poor. They live in a little cabin on a piece of land. And the father works very hard, barely eke out a living for them. There is no school anywhere. And the boy, Billy, and his three little sisters are schooled at home by their mother, whom they call Mama. Their only connection, really, with the outside world is a general store down the road run and owned by Grandpa, their grandfather, who is a source of, of wisdom and advice. So, finally, the boy just saves enough money on his own secretly, and Billy gets $50 which would be a lot of money in 1925. And with $50, he secretly makes a deal with his grandpa to purchase two red bone hounds. And he waits weeks and weeks to hear uh, about when they would arrive. They're coming from Kentucky. And then finally, he hears that the hounds are ready to be picked up, and he secretly leaves the house in the middle of the night and walks 32 miles to the southwest to Tahlequah. And there he gets the depot and finally holds those puppies in his arms, and he's in tears. So he trains these, these dogs in a year or so, and they are fully able to hunt coons. Mm -hmm. In the novel, there are two big moments of the hunt, and one of which is when he gets challenged on a bet to get what is called the, the ghost coon. And the Pritchard brothers, Reuben and Rainey, uh, are not nice boys. They're dishonest. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they challenge Billy. And the grandpa is so offended, he tells Billy to accept the challenge against his better wishes. And that is on that terrible moment um, when they finally go to get the ghost coon. Billy discovers, and the dogs discover the secret to the ghost coon's trick. He jumps off a tree branch and dumps it, jives into a hollow post on a fence. Mm. So, <laughs> rascally old ghost yeah. coon. So, uh, old Dan and, and little Ann, the dogs, finally tree the ghost coon. And who comes running up but the Pritchard's blue tick hound? That's when the dogs get in a big fight. And Reuben says, I'm going to kill those dogs. And he grabs the axe and runs with it. And this is a moment we all remember is when Reuben falls on the axe and it, it lodges in his stomach and he dies right there on the, in the ground. And to young readers, that's a very desperate, sad moment. Mm -hmm. And it's complicated because there's nothing redeemable about the behavior of Reuben or Rainey. And yet mm -hmm. we feel a, a moment of compassion for them because they two are brothers. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very sad moment. And it's later on when Billy comes back and he, le he leaves, leaves the hatchet in the tree and never takes it out. He said he doesn't want everyone to hunt again after what he saw. He told his father and his father tried to go out there and, and make amends with the very strange family, the Pritchards. And uh, he said all were very, very sad. In the novel, every novel functions on conflict. There has to be some kind of conflict, whether mm -hmm. between people or, or the land, humans and the land. Um, this novel has both of those conflicts, which makes it so powerful. Mm -hmm. So it's a very sad moment, a lesson about honesty, you know, fairness, and, uh, and loyalty. All that's at play in that moment. And, and a notion of mortality and death, which foreshadows the eventual uh, death of the hounds at the end of the novel. Then, of course, later on, Grandpa has saved money and used some of the money from Billy's wages from selling the furs to participate in a competition where people from all over the country, the different states, are driving up for this coon hunting competition. And he's now of local renown. He's, he knows he gets more skins than any, any other boy, or, or man for that matter. Mm -hmm. And then the three generations, Grandpa, Papa, who wasn't going to go because he was so busy, and Billy all get in the wagon and, and head up there, which is probably about 20 miles away, but a world away for, for some people. Yeah, that's a long <laughs> wagon ride. So, and that's an exciting moment for any boy, and a boy reader. Three generations, you got your grandpa with you, your dad who's too busy to do anything, and here you are, and your dogs. Yeah. So they have the great competition. In the competition, what happens is, 
times and gets uh, wins a trophy for the being the prettiest dog, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what she's known for. She's not exactly aggressive, but she's smart and beautiful, mm-hmm. right? And then Dan is just uh, ferocious and indomitable, you know, in the hunt. By them, they finally tree those four coons to win the, the trophy. There's an ice storm. Grandpa's broken an ankle. <laughs> and the dogs are like, and it's not supposed to be humorous, but it almost is. The dogs are so frozen with ice, they look like ghosts. Yeah. And they, they build a fire. They're always able to do that, right? It's as exciting as a reader when you're a boy that Billy can build a fire at any time. Yeah, He yeah. falls in the icy river, he builds a fire. Yeah. Right? He can do that. Right? He's that competent in the woods. And so they win the two trophies and they head for home. And then after, the, after that moment, we, we have this terrible event of the hellcat or the cougar that the dogs tree. And devil cat, they devil call it cat, the devil cat of the Ozarks. And the only way to redeem that story is that the the dog saved Billy's life. The devil cat was going to pounce on him, right? And so the novel really is about about love at at the heart of all of this. And it's the love between the two dogs, Dan and Ann. And so when Dan is is torn up by the cougar, and Vinci dies on the porch, and the mother again, the gracious mother, she tries to put his entrails back in his body and sew him up. And she washes them all off and everything, really understanding that kind of country life. It's kind of a world away from me. And so sews up Dan, and he lies on the porch, and he does die. He lost too much blood. And then it gets the sadder moment, though, is when Anne dies of a broken heart. You know, and as a kid, I mean, you're reading this part, and, and there's not a dry eye out there in yeah. the readership. I mean, yeah. it's a real moment when a boy or a girl has to c- confront mortality. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and death itself. And, and, and it's a tender moment because Billy doesn't understand it. He tried to talk to his father about it, and his father consoles him by telling him that there's a reason for everything. There's design in the universe and purpose. And the original plan was Billy was going to stay behind and work with Grandpa at the store. And now, because the dogs died and he would no longer be coon hunting, he could accompany the family when they went west. This is what Billy asks. Is there a heaven where where even dogs can go to -hmm. to hunt Mm -hmm. as they wish day and night? And he said, yes, that's where they're going to go. So when they're buried up on the hilltop, side by side, a red fern grows between them. And there's a legend in the novel. They say it's an old Indian legend. Uh, One time a boy, sister and a brother were were walking in a blizzard and they both uh, froze to death. And there's a chance that could be a reference to the Trail of Tears. Because a lot of Cherokee people did freeze to death when they walked that 950 miles from the east uh, into Oklahoma. Mm. And there's a, at least a quarter of all Cherokees died in that terrible trek. Wow. And so if it's a reference to a little boy and little girl, maybe maybe Cherokees, it's a way to, to redeem their lives and make, make it so that their lives meant something and they have purpose. Because now when the red fern grows, it's only, as they say, planted by an angel. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fern that never dies. So it's sacred. So in that moment, and this is a big theme in American literature, is whether you're Native American or, or European American, you sanctify the land. And the land becomes sacred because something happened on it. Either someone died and they're put in the ground, you know, or many people died, like Gettysburg. That's how we hallow ground. That's hallowed ground. And it, you can't build on it, for example. So in that moment, when, the, when Dan and Ann are put in the ground, finally... You know, Billy has a place there, and in the burial, a lasting place forever. And in the burial itself, the author says, or the narrator, that he buried his childhood there. Mm. And he put it in the ground, and now he, he is now a man. He hands the box of the winnings to his father, without question, right? And I underline that novel saying, this is the moment when he's become a man, mm-hmm. right? It's no longer about me. It's for my family. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really touching moment. And then when they're in the wagon, and there's the fern on, up on the hillside, and Dan and I are in the ground, and he says... Uh, I, I left that land, the Ozarks, and I never returned. Mm. In other words, he left his childhood for good. Yeah. He's become a man now. To broaden our understanding, we need to take a step back 
This book is autobiographical, meaning it's based on the life of the author, which makes it really interesting because we're about to learn some stuff about old Mr. Wilson Rawls that will make us scratch our heads. Let's talk about the beloved, peculiar, and unlikely author. Here's Professor Tutank. Who was Wilson Rawls? What do you know about Wilson Rawls? Wilson Rawls was a writer, and a writer unbelievably successful. If you consider the fact that at present, to date, his most famous novel, Where the Red for Engrossed, sold 6,754,308 copies, mm. with two movies attempting to portray the novel. So in, in terms of books, like American literature books in this category, would that be, I mean, that sounds like a lot to me, 6 million copies. Is that super successful? That That is very successful. And it's still being printed today? It's still printed today. Uh, if you walk into any Barnes & Noble, you go to the rack, it'll be on the rack with great novels like like The Yearling or Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's still a very much read novel. It's a very teachable novel, um, but it's certainly of deep scholarly interest. So when, when was he alive? See, he was born in 1913 and died in 1984. And uh, the novel, Where the Red Fern Grows, was published in 1961. So you think about it, he didn't really get, get to that novel until later in his life. Yeah. And in the meantime, what did he do? Well, if this novel is considered to be autobiographical, he probably left Oklahoma or the Ozarks, as he prefers to call them, around almost maybe 14 years old, right? In 1927, I would say. Hmm. So that's just around the before the Great Depression. And as you know, in the novel, if we're thinking autobiographically, his family's very poor and they leave in a wagon. It seems earlier than it is because they're so poor they can't afford an right. automobile. And that would have been very consistent with people living in this part of the world. Yep. And his family was headed for California. You know, like another famous novel that takes off from Salisaw, The Grapes of Wrath. Okay. Right? They're headed okay. for California. The car breaks down in New Mexico, I believe Albuquerque, and the family never leaves. Okay. That <laughs> happened in Grapes of Wrath. No, no. In Wilson Rawls' life. Let's <laughs> yeah. not get the two confused. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Is it true he never came back to the Ozarks? Well, I think he made it back to Oklahoma because we know that he served two prison sentences in Oklahoma. No way. Yes. Wilson Rawls? Yes, it's crushing my dreams. Why did he go to prison? I don't know, but the third time he went to prison, it was in New Mexico. Are you being, you, this is not a joke. No. I'm not being punked. It's unbelievable to me, really. And then, you know, he, he, he <laughs> shocker, man. He eventually he got jobs. He worked for uh, the Atomic Energy Commission. Now, just in construction, but I think it might have been a higher level position. There's something in my mind as, as a scholar kind of churning right now. Working for the Atomic Energy Commission, living on in a cabin on a lake in Idaho Falls. That's where he ends up. And that's when he gets first gets married, and then he begins to write write the novel. So after he'd been to prison? Yes. Wilson Rawls went to prison three times? The character and morals portrayed in the book make this a shocking discovery. When I went to research his criminal background, I was thrown off by how hard the information was to locate. After talking more with Professor Tutan, I had to confirm the truth of this for myself because 99% of the things written about Wilson Rawls say nothing about it. There is one tiny blurb on the internet on Wikipedia that talks about it. That's it. Considering he was a children's author pre-internet when it was easy to hide stuff, it would have been pretty easy to hide it and clearly wasn't something publishers or he wanted to highlight, which you can't blame him for that. But I had to confirm this for myself.
Hello, my name's Clay. I am trying to find out if someone has been in prison in Oklahoma. Could you help me find out some information? Absolutely. I can get you over to records, and then they can look them up for you. Okay, great. That'd be great. Okay. One moment. Sean. Is not available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Press the pound key. Oh, darn it. Hey, Sean, my name's Clay, and I'm trying to get some information on uh, a man named Woodrow Wilson Rawls. He was born September 24th, 1913, and it's alleged that he served some prison time in Oklahoma, and I'm just trying to confirm if that's true. He's, he's deceased. If you could help me track that down, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I was a bit nervous while I waited for the confirmation of Mr. Wilson's criminal record. Not because it really mattered, but all the social cues screamed that it couldn't be true. But it was. Here is the information that I found. When he was 20 years old in 1933, he served 18 months in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary for larceny of domestic fowls. That means he stole some chickens and went to prison. Man, that's a tough judge, I guess. His second term in Oklahoma, we couldn't figure out what it was for. But I was able to find that on March 22, 1940, at the age of 27, he pleaded guilty to breaking and entering and burglary in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was sentenced to two to three years in the New Mexico State Penitentiary. The prison records say that he was 5 foot 10 and a quarter. He weighed 148 pounds, had a vaccination scar in his left arm, and was a smoker. Wilson Woody Rawls, that's what they called him, was an unlikely best-selling author, and his personal story is wildly intriguing and redemptive. He was one of six children born in the community of Scrapper in Cherokee County, Oklahoma, a fitting birthplace. He was educated by his mother, who was part Cherokee Indian, and as he recounted, when his school was finally opened, he had to wade across a river to get there, the Illinois River, which is in the book and movie. He was often tethered while crossing the river with a lariat rope around his waist so he wouldn't wash downstream. He went to school during the summer and only went for four years. As a young boy, he read the book Call of the Wild, which inspired him to want to be a writer. It was also during that time that he coon hunted with his blue tick hound, Rowdy. Mr. Wilson and his family left the Ozarks of Oklahoma when he was in his early 20s. He would end up living in New Mexico, finally settled down in Idaho for a lot of his adult life, but he died in Wisconsin in 1984. He primarily worked in construction his whole life, wherever he went. Throughout his young adulthood, he would write multiple book manuscripts by hand, as many as six, they say, and some of it on paper sacks. He would later say the spelling was horrible and that the handwriting included no punctuation. He kept the writing secret and was seemingly ashamed of his moonlighting passion. Before he got married at the age of 45 in 1958, it's believed that he burned many of his manuscripts. Yep, lit them on fire. It was only after he got married to his wife, Sophie, that he confessed his writing habits and she encouraged him to write. It is believed that Rawls quit his job and in three weeks he rewrote the entire 35,000 word book Where the Red Fern Grows from Memory. This would have most likely been in 1959. 
Sophie helped him edit the manuscript and submit it to a publisher. Mr. Wilson's story was originally published as a three-part series in 1961 in the Saturday Evening Post under the name The Hounds of Youth. From this initial exposure, a publishing company picked up the book and published it under the name Where the Red Fern Grows without Mr. Wilson's input, and it said that it broke his heart because he didn't think it would reach the children as effectively with that name. And this is what's wild. The book was not an immediate success. It wasn't until 1967, six years after the book was published, and decades after he originally wrote the first manuscript, that he got his first break. Mr. Wilson was invited to speak at a children's book conference, a place that ex-cons usually aren't invited. This was in Utah. And this would ignite a flame and open people's eyes to the mastery of his narrative. Mr. Wilson was in his mid-50s, a construction worker, and had never spoken in public before, and he almost didn't even go. After this conference, orders poured in for the book, and its hype spread like wildfire. And he would spend the final 20 years of his life before his passing in 1984, traveling to over 2,000 schools, making inspirational speeches to children, encouraging them to read and explore writing. An ex-convict turned best-selling author turned children's motivational speaker is an unlikely but redemptive path. It's easy for me to believe that he wouldn't be too quick to talk about his past, which seems like he never did. Maybe his fictional story was his way to right the wrongs of his youth. It's pure speculation. Here's a clip from the Disney movie Where the Red Fern Grows. You're going to hear the young voice of a man that we're about to meet. Well, Billy... Better get going. They'll be stirring soon. Good luck, son. I'll be looking for a big coonskin on the smokehouse wall in the morning. Bye, Billy. Bye, Billy. See you in the morning. Sure, we'll make a fine cap for a hunter. All right. I've taught you everything you know. Now we're going to see if you're coon dogs or if you're not. All I'm asking is for you to treat coon and I'll do the rest, okay? Go kid. I told you at the beginning of this about a man named Stuart Peterson who played the protagonist, Billy Coleman, in the original 1974 movie, Where the Red Fern Grows, which is by far the best movie. Love it. Gotta watch it. I was able to go to Wyoming and meet Mr. Stewart, now in his early 60s, and hear the story firsthand from him because he met Wilson Rawls. He actually met him in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, in the fall of 1973 on the movie set of Where the Red Fern Grows. Here's Mr. Stewart. So while you were down there, you had the opportunity to meet Wilson Rawls. He came down on the set and was there for, oh, but I think he was probably there a week. And so there well, were. What was he doing there? Was he. He came down to just observe and to see how things were going and what things looked like. Was and he an old man then? He, yeah, he would have been, uh, you know, of course, at 13, 
when people are over 65, anybody's old. Yeah. I think he would have probably been in his, uh, he would have been probably in his late 60s, early 70s at that point. You know, I was 13 and, and uh, but I just, I felt a, a real friendship, kinship to, to Wilson Rawls right off the bat. He was just that kind of a guy that he liked things that I like to do is when he talked and told me I was fascinated by some of his stories, his real life stories. So he, he spent some time with he, you. Yeah. I was, I, I wanted to be hearing him tell, cause he was, he had a way with words to tell a story. What was he, what was he like? He was just a, just, just a Southern gent, just a kind, uh, just seemed to have a kind personality to me, but his, his interests just were right kind of down my line. He wanted to be outdoors all the time, but, uh, did you know that he's been to prison? I didn't know. You've never heard that before? Uh-uh. Listen, Wilson Rawls served three terms in prison. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I was... He, it was when he was younger. I sensed that when I met him at my stage of life and, and his stage of life, he was past that to the to the extent that he was trying to make correction. Yeah. Uh, for the things that maybe... That's what's so interesting is it's autobiographical, but when you're... Uh, when you're a fiction writer, you can go back and make this story that's kind of about you, kind of the way you want it to be. Yeah. And so maybe he was going back in and kind of fixing his right. childhood. Because I, I had never the, thought about it that way, but the I think story, it's... you know, is just chocked so so full of character and Billy wrestling with God about stuff and all these little moral things going on and then the boy dies and you know i just assumed wilson rawls was just this like lifelong upstanding guy and i was i was kind of surprised when i heard yeah, he was I, I i would have to say, say the same i would i was surprised based on the fact that when i met him i i was i was immediately drawn to him just because there was a genuineness and, and kindness in his eyes that i never i wouldn't have ever expected you know of course i believe there's people in jail that can fool you with the look in their eyes uh, but for the most part it's just like for me looking in a horse's eyes I can kind of have an idea of their disposition and, and their character from how they may be I, I refer and dad kind of my dad always kind of alluded to this as I was growing up with him around horses that, as if you look in their eyes you can see a lot of what they may be in the future hmm. um, but, but I also recognize that there are those horses that have had a wild-eyed look and, and uh, down the road have changed and people can do the same. Mm-hmm. Mr. Wilson has been gone for almost 40 years, but in one of the few recordings of him, he gave a speech called Dreams Can Come True. And lucky for us, we can listen to it and in some small way, meet Mr. Wilson. Here is a short excerpt from that speech. I think you'll pick up on what the young Stuart Peterson did back on that movie set. Now, before I go into this talk, there's a few things that I think we better get straightened out. I'm not a professional speaker, although there seems to be an awful lot of people trying to make one out of me. But. I don't think I could be a professional speaker even if I wanted to. I'd have two strikes against me to begin with. One, my word vocabulary is practically zero. 
And I'm going to make a statement now that I don't know whether very many people would have nerve enough to make at this kind of a setting, especially English teachers. You're going to hear more grammar mistakes in one speech today than you will hear the rest of your life. I don't think this is altogether my fault. My mother said that I was born in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I guess she must have been right. Now, you're going to hear words today in my talk that some speakers may say they're not very appropriate words for a speaker to use, but I don't care what other speakers has to say. They're the only kind of words that I know, the words that I grew up with as a boy, words from the hills, the folklore word. You'll hear words like mama and papa, grandma and grandpa. These are the words that I grew up with and they're the only ones that I know how to use. I grew up in those hills on a little farm. This farm has been deeded to my mother. She's part Cherokee, back in the latter 1800s. That's when the government chopped up the Cherokee Strip and deeded it out in allotments to those who could lay claim to the Cherokee heritage. My mother was part Cherokee. I even have a roll number myself. I was the only boy in the family at that time, but I had a whole house full of sisters, five of them. I never have thought that was fair, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. And uh, like most country boys in those days, I didn't have any boys to run around with or play with. Neighbors were few and far between, and I was always alone. But the only friend I had was an old dog, and I couldn't play with my sisters. That was utterly impossible. You couldn't do that. I was interested in the outdoors, hunting and fishing. And I don't think I've ever had all of it I wanted in my life. The folklore word are the only words I know how to use, he said. His distinct, soothing Ozark drawl are endearing and familiar to my ear. This speech is over an hour long, but I just wanted us to interface with his demeanor. The place of authenticity from which Mr. Wilson wrote this book is what makes it special and unique. I still think it's odd that he never publicly addressed his past life. I would think it would have been a point of celebration and overcoming. Who knows? You can listen to the whole speech on a YouTube channel called Jim Trelease. Wilson Rawls, part one, two, three, four, and five, it's called. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith. 
one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives and the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. If you're familiar with the original 1974 movie, you might have also recognized Wilson Rawls' voice because he narrated parts of the movie. Nobody told me that. I just recognized it immediately. Here's Professor Tuton giving us some insight into autobiographical scholarship and the Native American influence in the book. Sometimes it's fun to consider someone's life as a story or as its own work of fiction. And if you think of Wilson Rawls as, kind of this, as this being the story of his, his confession or his being reformed, right? He's gonna, his gift to, to young men will be a novel about how to behave. Yeah. How to find an There's ethical There's some redemption life. inside of that, isn't Exactly. There? So, you know, don't, don't be like the Pritchards. (laughs) So how many other books did Wilson Rawls write? One other, uh, some were the monkeys. So he just wrote two books. Just two. He was not a prolific author. It was, he was kind of a one hit wonder. I think so. Yeah. But you know, I should also mention that Wilson Rawls was, was a Cherokee. Right. And and it's very culturally interesting to see how important that culture was to him as an author and and the way it it plays out in a subtle manner in the novel. So it's one of the first scenes in the original movie from 1974. He mentions, he says, this land was given to my family because of the Cherokee blood that ran in my mother's veins. Opening scene. It Mm -hmm. sets it up. And, And from being from this part of the world, very much... Native American presence still in Oklahoma to this day. If, if you re, if you know a little bit about the culture or the Cherokee history, 
it, it becomes pretty clear that it's it it plays a role in that novel. I mean, he's we, you know Willie's re- referencing the uh, the Allotment Act of 1887. You know, on the one hand, those who were progressive and sometimes a tribe would be split on whether to allot the land. Some believed it was it was a chance to finally make uh, Native Americans yeoman farmers, uh, learn the value of property, and prepare them for citizenship, which they did not formally receive until 1924. Hmm. But they did under the Allotment Act in 1887. If you got your land allotted, you did become a U.S. So the, citizen. So the Native Americans on the reservations were not U.S. citizens until 1924. Is that what I heard you say? Officially, yeah. you know, for some, it was uh, like, for example, the Navajo Nation was not allotted because the land was not arable. So I believe the Navajos weren't U.S. citizens until 1924 by, by birthright. Okay. Some say as a reward for, for serving in World War I. You know, more Native Americans per capita serve in our wars than any other group. Wow, so, that's interesting. So that novel opens with, there's some the background there, that the land's been allotted, and you know, the, Billy and his family have a little piece of land. Um, and it kind of dramatizes the trouble that Native Americans had. They get this piece of land, and now suddenly it's taxed. It's in trust with the federal government. So they do this because they didn't believe Native Americans were uh, competent. That was a term they used to to own or sell their land, unless mm. they had uh, a minimum of uh, a quarter of white blood. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So they're living on this land, and that's up in the background, you know. And and the and Papa is and Mama are trying to scrape by, you know. And uh, if they don't pay their taxes, they're going to take their land. Yeah. And that's almost foreshadowed in the novel. You recall when the Pritchards say, "You can't get the ghost coon." And they lead them up to this house, and they say, they used to, and it's kind of eerie. I don't know if you, how you feel about this. The land's kind of haunted because there's no house, but you can see there's these beautiful trees around something that might have been a house at one time. Mm. And there's this fence with the tall posts where the ghost coon hides in the hollow center yes. of that post. Yes. But they, the Pritchards say, some Indians used to live here. Oh. And it's okay. kind of haunted because you think, well, what happened to them? Why did they leave their land? And it could have been. Great. There's so much in the book, just little pieces like that. Yeah. That are so, that do such a great job of reflecting really what happened. It, it's all over the book. Yeah. You, you can tell whoever, you know, if you didn't know Wilson Rawls, you didn't know the story, you'd read the book and you'd be like, this person did their research. Yeah. And we began with the bi- biographical, shocking biographical material <laughs> of Wilson Rawls. <laughs> But what it makes me ask is, where did he get this education? He said he had virtually no books in his home. You could see he was very poor. Yeah. How did he manage to do this? I mean, he's a very good writer. Let's hear what Mr. Wilson has to say. During those three years that I bummed around all over the country, I kept writing. I couldn't quit. Every chance I got, I'd write on something. And sometimes she said I didn't have money enough to buy a writing paper with. But this writing had gotten such a hold on me that uh, I wouldn't let anything stand in my way. I I used to go around in the alleys and strange little towns, and I'd take the brown paper sacks from the trash cans, and I'd cut the bottom of them out and split them open, and I had a big sheet of paper. Take the brown paper from boxcars and cut it up into strips, I wrote a lot of stories on that old brown paper, but I was so ashamed of those stories and the writing. I couldn't spell anything. I can't do very good to this day. I couldn't punctuate anything. I'd just write one line after the other. Wherever my voice broke, there was a dash. There was no paragraph. It's just one line after the other. I have the old handwritten manuscripts. When I go to the schools, I take them with me sometime and show them to the kids. Try to prove to him what a man can do if he really wants to do it. 
The literary mechanisms used by Mr. Wilson are extraordinary, especially when you consider his background. I mean, this guy wrote this novel on brown paper sacks. This should inspire us. It tells us that it's possible for the common man to rise above challenges and achieve purpose. I've got more questions. Professor Tuton, how is a book qualified as an American literary classic? Like, what officially qualifies this? Is it the amount of books sold? Is, it, is there some way to scale the impact of a book on our culture? Or is it an assessment that's hard to put your finger on? You just know it when you see it. That is a, a fine question. Now, copies sold could actually count against a work and its greatness. Really? Yes, it could be considered a, a too popular. But yeah, some, some novels can be considered, you know, too popular and not uh, great literature. Nowadays, if you go into a bookstore, we don't have, or usually, you don't see a fiction section separated from a literature section, right? Meaning that there's a notion of low art and high art, right? We really have worked against that. And we you now think about it. If you think about something, I'm looking right now on my bookshelf here, and I'm looking at Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other great American writers were writing at the time, and they were looking east. People like Henry James. He would be an American, but set his novels in England. Mm. And then you had somebody like Mark Twain come along, who grew up on the Mississippi, and reflects on his early life on the Mississippi, and invents his character, Huck Finn, with this amazing vernacular that spends his time on the river in the woods. And suddenly we have a great work of American fiction. Now, Huck Finn actually did sell well, but was still considered very quickly to be a great work in American literature because it gave voice to the uniqueness of American life, right? And the way people talked in and of itself, the, the vernacular, right? It was authentically American. Yes, there's that. So there's that element. It, it occurs on American land. It uh, expresses an American experience, even down to the voice, the color, the language, the way people dress and talk. And that's what makes it great. The other element that when we might think about what some makes something very literary and, and, and worthy of, of discussion and, and, and searching for meaning within it is it usually functions on a couple of different levels. You have the story in itself, right? This is a boy, you know, in Where the Red Fern Grows. This is a boy who likes to go on coon hunts. That's a basic story. And you'd think, well, you know, okay, that's interesting. Let's read about it. And you may see a book that just tells the, you know, the daily experiences of a boy on a coon hunt. Right. And that probably wouldn't be that appealing to most people because they don't have that experience in their in their background. Right. But then a great writer will tell a story with depth, meaning that when he goes on the coon hunt, he learns about how to behave, how to treat your fellow man, right? The, the pitfalls of, of lying and treachery, cunning and ambition and resilience, all, the, all these, these very important values in the young man's character, Billy begins to, to learn through his coon hunting. So the novel is not just about coon hunting, but certainly about the very notion of love itself. I mean, on page 243 in my book, I mean, this is when Mr. Kyle was the judge at the final competition. Right. And when he sees the way that Dan and Ann behave toward each other, he says, Mr. Kyle says, it's a shame that people all over the world can't have that kind of love in their hearts, he said. There would be no wars, slaughter, or murder, no greed or selfishness. It would be the kind of world that God wants us to have, a wonderful world. Mm. So there you go. I bought this new copy so I could write in it. Hey, listen, I have the exact <laughs> same phrase underlined in my book. And then just, just uh, moments like that, and this is one of the most explicit moments when when Wilson Ross wants to really let you know the depth of the story, right. the importance of it. Yes. But other times he's very subtle. And so what makes it a classic is its depth. Yes. And its connection to anybody. You don't have to be a coon hunter. And it's it would be very easy to say that 99.9% of people that love this book and have read it 
have never and will never go coon hunting in their life. Mm -hmm. But they receive value and meaning from this and connection to it. That's what makes it a classic, I guess. As a kid and into my adulthood, I thought where the red fern grows was a regional phenomena because I grew up within a couple hours of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, where the book was based. I was completely oblivious to the wide-reaching impact of the book. Just in the last year, I've encountered multiple people from far away in foreign places to me like California that have said they were impacted by the book. I was shocked they'd ever heard of it. Here's my friend, Andreas Atai. He's a video producer at Meat Eater, and he loves the book. Andreas, so you read this book as a kid. Why was this book meaningful to you? There's so many reasons. I think growing up in Orange County, California, one of the big ones was the connection it brought to meeting nature. When I was growing up, there was still farmland. There was still uh, space but a lot of it was disappearing very quickly. But the thing that there wasn't a lot of in suburbia was the freedom like young adults yearn, right? Like that that freedom that the character protagonist has, mm-hmm. it's like we all experience that as adolescent children. However, he actually got that freedom. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't have that as much anymore, but seeing the protagonist do that, that's fantastic. Like the fact that Billy was able at 12 to like save $50 in 19 whatever, uh, the yeah. depression era, that's insane. Imagine how much money that is. And just yeah. all on his own, like that is freedom. Like removing the Ozarks from this, like I don't even think that we need this book to be in the Ozarks. But this is a different kind of freedom that resonates so nicely, especially when you're in school. And we we were we had to read this book. It, it's a... Really? So this was assigned reading in Orange County, California? Yeah, not just Orange County. Like, my wife read it in Lakeport, California, which is 10 and a half hours north of Orange County. If you think about it, it's pretty wild that a book about hunting raccoons with hounds is required reading in some of America's most urban areas. Honestly, as a group of people concerned about the future of hunting, we can look to this as a pattern. Wilson Rawls masterfully combined the human story with hunting. He humanized the coon hunter and made him relevant. I just can't get away from Wilson Rawls. When I first started making this podcast, I planned to talk about him for like five minutes, but his story just keeps interjecting itself into the relevance of our discussion. Here's Professor Tutan. So when someone writes an autobiographical novel, so it's it's fiction, so it's not it's technically not a true story, but it reflects a true story. How much of this do we know would have come from Wilson's life? We're kind of just guessing assuming. Yeah, and it's it's uh it's an error in in scholarship to assume that the fiction is an exact representation of the author's life. But it's it's thoroughly acceptable to speculate. Yeah. and look into the biographical material. It's called biographical scholarship where we look into the life of the person, try to find elements of of that person's life in in the fiction to illuminate the meaning. So we know that Wilson Rawls, for example, didn't have sibling dogs. He had, he believe he had one blue tick hound. One blue tick. Yeah. But he didn't have red bone hounds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, that's the one part of the story that I bet isn't true. I bet Wilson Rawls' dog wasn't as good as old Dan and little Ann. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> if I could go back and rewrite my childhood history of coon hunting, my dogs would be better than they actually were. <laughs> you see, and that's the genius of fiction. It's your world. I just actually, yeah. I wrote a novel. I'm 
trying to get published. And once you go down that rabbit hole into fiction, I mean, there's, it's, it's become so, such a, p- a work of pleasure because uh, it's your world. Do you get to paint the picture you want painted? Whatever you want. And there's something you want to correct from your childhood, you can. You can get the dog you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the reason they're red, red bone hounds and not a blue tick hound, I believe, is because they match the color of the red fern that grows between them on the I'll path. be darn. See, there's a pretty strong literary move from someone yeah. who wasn't trained in literature. Yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I was, my next question was going to be, why did he not go with blue ticks? Because I know coon hunters, and coon hunters like their breeds of dogs, and it's hard to break somebody away from whatever they get attached to. So I was really surprised to hear that he had a blue tick, yeah. and he went with red bone in the, in the book. Redbone hounds, you say? I want to introduce you to a real redbone man. Come on in. Hello. What are you doing? How you doing, Long man? Time no see, man. Yeah, Come it has in. been a while. We're just kind of kicking around. This is my mom's. This is where I raised. Okay. And, uh, of course, mom's long this is, gone. This is where you yeah, this grew is, up. This is where I grew up. Our first house was, well, the first one's where I live. Okay. And we moved in 50 ate up to that building out there and it burned okay. down the 60s and then they built this one but anyway i'll be darn what's your name buddy oh. Brantley. Brantley. i'm clay that's good to meet you buddy that's my grandson Brantley. and Man, he's ready is buddy. that a real coon skin cap right oh, yeah. there uh, look you there dude yeah that's handsome i'll tell you it's nice this is my friend ronnie smith and his grandson brentley We found ourselves at a beautiful fork in the road where I want to bring us back into modern times. We've got to understand a bit about coon hunting and red bone hounds to understand this full picture. So far, we've talked about Wilson Rawls and the impact of his book, but I want to plant us down in the life of a real modern American coon hunter. And if anybody qualifies, it's Mr. Ronnie. And we're going on a coon hunt. So this here. is this is your home place. This uh, is your farm. My gra- yes, sir. And my my grandfather uh, was born about right down in this holler right here, and they lost this place uh, that it went out of the family during the depression. Hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be able to buy it back in 1992, oh, and it's like coming home, you know. But this is uh, part of the original. If they come in on a stolen horse or not, I don't know. But this is where my grand my grandfather was born and raised. Yep. Man, what a beautiful night, huh? It is a beautiful night. It's a half moon. It's a half moon. Where the stars are glowing. Mm-hmm. Sawyer, tell me about these dogs. Well, this is a uh, this is this is Liza Jane right here, and uh, she's 11 years old. She's a Grand Night Champion. She's a pretty good dog. Yeah. Treat a lot of coons with her. And the other ones, he's an eight-year-old male. I don't know if he's won anything in the competitions or not, but I just got him three or four months ago. I've been training quite a few coons with him. Yeah. We're just going to send them down the road if you would. Yeah. There should be quite a few coons in here. I don't hunt this one. I said hopefully they'll tree a coon, but we're going to have a good time even if they don't. We'll cut them loose. Oh, yeah. Ready? Yeah. Let them go. Sawyer is Ronnie's youngest son. We've cut the dogs loose into the starry Ozark night Undoubtedly no different than many nights that Wilson Rawls would have hunted less than 50 miles away. We're standing in the dark, listening for dogs. Did you hear a dog bark? He's right up here on the hill. Yeah, I heard one as well. 
Here? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's him. him. And Liza's missing. One of them's Liza. They might have treated coon. He just barks a lot. <laughs> you know, Eliza don't bark for no reason. You got him trained. Yes, sir. He does better than me. <laughs> They'll get that one treed where they're at, I'm sure. They found I, I a figured coon. there'd be a few around this pond. I've been a seeing coon. a few around here while I've been around here at night. They found a coon, I think. I don't know if if you can hear it, but we just we were hearing dogs off. How far you think they are? 250, 300 yards? Yeah, just kind of some... We're listening for them. They're, they're, they've struck it and they're trailing a little bit. Not too hot, though, is it? Not too hot. Before we go to the dogs, I want to learn a bit about Mr. Ronnie's connection to coon hunting and redbone hounds because these two things created the unlikely architecture by which Wilson Rawls put himself among the literary greats of American fiction. This is myself and Mr. Ronnie back at the house. So, Mr. Ronnie, how long have you had red bones? My first one, I was about, probably my dad had red bones when I was just a, just a little fella. Mm-hmm. The first I remember, I was probably five or six, and he had a three-legged dog that he called Bob. That was a red <laughs> dog, and I'll tell you, that song got short trick. He, mm-hmm. he outrun most all the four-legged dogs. I never knew any of them. Imagine if he'd had four legs. Hell, man. He probably wouldn't <laughs> have been worth a nickel, you know. <laughs> So your dad started hunting yes. red bones. Mm-hmm. What what time period would that have been? That would have been uh, oh in the early sixties. Early sixties, yeah. huh? And we meat hunted and hide hunted. You know, the, yeah. Uh, we ate some coons and sometimes glad to have it. You know, yeah. Things were a little poor here in Northwest Arkansas in those days. So you grew up right here, right here, yeah, on this farm. I, I'm within a half a mile of where I was born. How long has your family been coon hunting that you can track? My dad told me the story before I was born that the first raccoon that they ever seen in this county, people come from miles around to see it. Hmm. Well, whoever whoever treated that coon, I couldn't say who. Uh, they may have just shot it out of a tree. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That there weren't any coons here. That would have been as when he was a young man in the... I suppose early fifties. So your grandson is sitting here with mm-hmm. us, and you said he's a fifth generation mm-hmm. coon. Yeah, my my grandpa was a was a hide hunter, but it was possums and skunks. Okay, there wasn't any coons here, and huh. maybe a maybe a bobcat once in a while, you know. So that yeah. was, and he done that uh, with hounds. Then my dad, and of course myself and my boys, and then there's my grandson. So he'd be the fifth generation that I know of. Yeah, you know, all pretty much right here on this spot. And so y'all have hunted red bones. Well, we've we've had a few others, and I've handled in in some UKC night hunts in the World Championships and things. I've handled some different breeds of dogs for friends of mine. Yeah, but my mainstay's always been red dogs. If you were trying to describe the different breeds of dogs to people that had no context mm-hmm. for hounds, would there be anything that would stand out to you about red bones that would be different than another breed? They're pleasing to the eye. They're a beautiful dog to look at. Right. But, you know, we, we hunt them for the, the treeing abilities and the natural-born instincts in these dogs. And uh, they, they're eager to please and not quite as hard-headed as some of them. You know, maybe an old plot hound or something. <laughs> Easy now. Easy now. He's ribbing me about hunting plot hounds. That's what coon hunters do to each other. You know, they're just uh, born natural tree dogs. And if, yeah. if you're hunting tree-minded game, you better have something that'll, it don't matter yeah. how fast he is if he won't stay there until you get there. You know, would you agree with me in saying that 
the, of the six or seven breeds of UKC registered tree dogs, mm-hmm. tree hounds, mm-hmm. th- they're all going to kind of do the same thing. A lot of it is aesthetics. It's kind of like, mm-hmm. what kind of truck do you want to drive? Do you want to drive a Chevrolet, a GMC, a Dodge? I mean, is that about right? It's about right. It, but the types of hound have changed in 40 years. Uh, we used to have a, a cold trailing dog with a superb nose that could, man, you'd think of a bloodhound. They could trail a coon two days old, seems like, you know, mm-hmm. and have the coon most of the time. But today's dogs, for the most part, are not that way. Tell me why, back in the day, you would have needed a dog like that and why today's dogs are different well it goes back to how we started out here that uh, there weren't any coons in this county coon hides got up to i can remember 48 dollars wow which was a tremendous amount of money and that was the early to middle 70s and uh, you didn't go every night uh, and tree five coons you might go tonight and tree a coon and you might skip five nights trying you know yeah so if you had to have a son of a gun that didn't get fooled too easy you know if a, a coon would tap tree you know would run up the tree and jump and different things and uh, the old hounds that that i had would check that tree today's dogs don't check hmm. they roll up to that tree and close their eyes and they just forget everything except let's wait till they get here okay so when when the coons were scarce mm-hmm. and when we were yes. meat and hide hunting you needed a different time you, kind of you you had to take advantage of every track that you mm-hmm. got so if your That's dogs it. found a coon if it was old you wanted them to find it so why are they like they are today well they've just bred them up to be a little what i call hot hot nosed there's such an emphasis in the night hunts, and night hunts is a big deal when you go and to that's these a comp- competition, competition hunt. hunt, night hunt in a competition. You get extra points to be the first dog treed and you being able to declare that dog treed. So when it come around the tree and, you know, uh, you get more points, people figured out a, a way to, to speed that up a little bit. Uh, maybe they mixed a little of this or mixed a little different breeds in there. Who knows? There's all kinds of stories. Right. But that was the reasoning behind it. So they wanted a dog that would mm-hmm. lock onto a tree quicker. Mm-hmm. But I guess the thing even behind that is now we have a ton of coons. ton of coons. I found over time that dogs seem to mistreat a lot more coons now than they did in those days because they checked harder and maybe the coons don't run as hard. I don't know, but it doesn't seem to be quite as difficult as it did as a young fella. To just get out and tree a coon. Just get out and tree a coon, you know. I keep going back to the question of why is coon hunting so culturally iconic, especially in the South and Midwest? Why was Wilson Rawls imprinted so deeply by it? I think it's a complex answer. It's that we interact with the world at night. It's man's connection to a dog. It's the adventure. But I think a lot of it has to do with what Mr. Ronnie has alluded to. There was a time when a good hound was extremely valuable. He said in the middle 1970s, about the time the original movie came out, Coon hides went for as high as $48 per hide in the commercial fur markets. Raccoon hides are used all over the world for fur jackets, trim on jackets, and hats. Fur stuff is really cool, and I think it's coming back into fashion. To put that number of $48 into perspective, minimum wage was $2.30 an hour in 1975. Treen one prime coon would be equivalent to working over 20 hours at minimum wage. And I don't know about you hillbillies, but that sounds like a good way for a hillbilly like me to make money. A good hound was extremely valuable, especially to a poor family 
And that monetary value built a deep cultural value to tree and a coon, which is what we still have to this day, though coon hides are of little monetary value today. Usually a hide is worth less than $5, but the imprint of the days of great value is still alive. It's a cultural artifact. When I was in high school in western Arkansas, I once remember driving my Chevy S10 4x4 pickup to the Walmart parking lot and meeting a fur buyer who was making his way through our town. I brought him eight case-skinned frozen coon hides in, not ironically, Walmart sacks. These coons had been treed by my blue tick hound named Thunder, who was not very good. The buyer looked at the hides and commented on the dog sign on them, meaning they'd been chewed on a little bit. And he said, I'll give you $8 a hide. And I absolutely agreed. I've never in my life been more proud of $64. I can't recall what I did with it, but the cash was meaningful. After listening to the hounds trail a coon, Mr. Ronnie and Brentley finally say Liza Jane is treed. We jump in the truck to get a little closer. Things are a bit different since Billy Coleman hunted in these hills. You guarantee she's got a coon, you said? Oh, man. I like that confidence. I bet, I bet $52. You bet $52 she's got a coon? Yeah. All right, let's go see. Oh boy. Oh boy. Den tree, for sure. Get on there, baby. Liza Jane is barking at the base of a dead hollow tree. It's what we call a den tree. Billy Coleman would have cut it down, but Mr. Ronnie is happy just petting his dog and calling it good. The raccoon won. Brentley and I call our bet a draw. We both knew it wasn't a real bet, and we didn't shake on it. I continued to be amazed at the response that humanity gives someone who's humble and authentic. This humility I speak of covers the real-life Wilson Rawls and his fictional character, Billy Coleman. Secondly, I'm amazed that a coon hunting story has been so widely read and accepted by society at large. This story transcends human experience and personal history, and people can't help but love it. I'm not sure how to take Wilson Rawls not talking about his checkered past, and perhaps he did, and it's just not recorded. It's encouraging to think that he found a way to move past the character flaws of his youth. Perhaps Billy Coleman's character is who he wished he'd been as a young man. And in this creative way, perhaps he righted the wrong by leaving such a strong deposit of character in the form of this timeless story that won't be snuffed out by time. When I think about American hunting, which is deeply personal to me, I realize even more how it's a part of our collective American story. It's part of our identity. And there are ideologies that are currently interested in snuffing out many parts of our hunting lifestyle, 
including hunting with dogs, which is often a target of anti-hunting sentiment. And I'll pound the table and declare that if our ability to hunt with hounds is stripped away from us, that part of our humanity is also being stripped away. And you'd think we'd realize by now that that's not good for anybody. It's my hope that this series will be a celebration of a literary masterpiece portraying rural America that made it into the mainstream. On this episode, we've introduced Professor Sean Tutan, Stuart Peterson, and Ronnie Smith. In part two of this series, we're going to get deeper into the book, and we'll hear about Mr. Stewart's experience as a rising childhood actor and why he quit. And we'll learn more about the nuts and bolts of coon hunting with Mr. Ronnie. It's guaranteed to be good and insightful. It sure was for me. Thanks so much for listening to Bear Grease. Please share our podcast with friend and foe. And hey, those Bear Grease hats that everybody loves are finally back in stock on the Meat Eater website, so go get them. And hey, that Black Panther Believer hat is on the website too. You can check that out at TheMeatEater.com. And hey, we'll hear you next week on The Render talking about all this stuff. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana. They're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance access deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order.